last verse in chapter 4 and then begin with the first verse in chapter 5. And we're in a section where there's an extended uh, contrast between the temporal and the eternal. And in this contrast, Paul uses quite a few different terms and uh, to say the basic same thing is that the temporal is not worthy to be compared with the glories of the eternal. That's, that's the key point here. But before we do that, we want to begin with prayer. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather with the family of God and to pray together and to study together and to worship together and to bring honor to your holy name. And we thank you for the extended family of God that's able to join us over the Internet. We pray for them that they also would find fellowship and ways to partake in the means of grace together and pray for their blessing and that the word would also benefit them. So we commit this day to you, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, as I said, we're finishing finally 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we were on verse 18. 2 Corinthians 4.18. Well, I need to start with 17, so we start with the beginning of a sentence. <laughs> okay? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. So now we have the category seen and not seen, and temporal and eternal. So <clears throat> there are other passage, similar passages that uh, have, make the same contrast. And let's turn to one together. Uh, it's a, a long section, but 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 42, is a real important background to this to what we're studying here. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So I'll begin reading with verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It, that is the body, is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. By the way, verse 44 does not imply that the resurrection body is somehow not really a body. Paul's using the term spiritual in a different way than he usually does. But what he's talking about is, is that the re- resurrected body is one that is fit for the eternal order. Would you agree with that, Ryan? It's not the Gnostic idea that the material realm's bad, so God uh, is not going to raise us with a real body. Because uh, the, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead, right? Jesus Christ was raised. He had a real body, however, of a slight, somewhat different nature. Uh, than ours. What's that? Glorified. Yeah, it's glorified body. Then it says in verse 45, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now this is talking about in the incarnation. Now, 
the Adam and Christ analogy is used several times in the Bible. And it's an important one. And it's also found in Romans chapter 5, Adam and Christ. The first Adam and the last Adam. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, the second is from heaven. Okay, so there's important distinction. Adam was created out of the dust of the earth. Jesus existed eternally with God and as God, and he came to earth through the incarnation. So there's a difference there. As is the earthy, so are those who are earthy, and as the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is in our uh, uh, mortal bodies here, we shall bear the image of the heavenly. So now that's telling us that we're going to receive a resurrection body like the one that Christ has, in which he ascended into heaven. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, verse 50 should be the end of all kingdom now theology. Do you know why I'm saying that? Yeah, if these guys claiming that they have the kingdom now are still flesh and blood, they're wrong. Does that make sense? It can't, it can't, the kingdom can't be instituted until after the resurrection, if, according to this passage. And this whole concept is very similar to what's proclaimed in Hebrews 11, when it says, By faith Abraham went out, and he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And it goes on to say in Hebrews 11 that they died in faith without receiving their promises because they were looking for a country that was eternal. That was eternal. They were looking for a country that wouldn't die, that wasn't of this earth. They weren't of this yeah, earth. Exactly. So they were looking for something that was beyond, it was just temporal. Right. So, so when people are talking about kingdom now, as if you could establish the kingdom through the ordinary means uh, that are at our disposal now, by, you know, they have different theories. Uh, some say these latter-day apostles and prophets are going to establish the kingdom, and others claim that we're going to learn how to speak the word, use God's creative powers that supposedly invested in us to speak things into existence. Um, uh, this is all just over-realized eschatology is what we would call it. Okay, uh, Cheryl. Um, I have a, um, a question. Uh, at the time that uh, the church is raptured by Christ, yes. would that automatically mean that those, those believers who are raptured will also have glorified bodies? Yes, good question. And the answer is yes, according to uh, 1 Thessalonians, where is that, 4? 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, The dead in Christ shall rise first, and that we that remain will be caught up uh, to be with the Lord in the, meet the Lord in the air. So the, the resurrection happens at the, at the rapture of the, of the righteous. Now, um, let me read a little more, and then Ryan will comment on this. Because that's really the next couple of verses I was going to read. First Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So that means there'll be some people alive on the earth at the time of the rapture. 
and they will just immediately be caught up with the Lord. Others, Paul uses sleep as a euphemism for death to indicate that Christians in their death still are alive uh, spiritually. Okay, and then it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and here it says, The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. All right, so this sets this half, this event at that time. Okay, Ryan. Um, verse 50 is a, uh, a, a verse used often by those that are trying to advocate there is no physical resurrection of the body, where it says flesh and blood cannot inherit yeah. the kingdom. And what's, number one, we need to look at this in context. We just read this whole passage. And it's clear Paul is talking about a body, which by definition is a physical vessel. Uh-huh. So he's going through that. And secondly, when I, I've brought this passage up in my hermeneutics class because it's where when you see uh, parallelism or, or, or further explanation, right. you get clued in. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And then furthermore, the perishable cannot yeah. inherit the imperishable. So a Paul is declaring here that flesh and blood, as he's just described, the flesh and blood that is perishable, perishable, uh, in, uh, sown in dishonor, weakness, and natural, and in our earthy, earthy, earthy yeah. in this state, cannot inherit it. We need to be yeah. uh, resurrected, yeah. changed. And that's what the, the, the context points to here. Absolutely. That's an, a very important con. What Ryan is talking about is very important in hermeneutics. And in any time we're interpreting Scripture, it's important to see synonymous parallelisms. People that treat, teach air will ignore those things. Now, we're, I'm going to show you one today when I'm preaching in Luke chapter 8. Because it starts at the beginning of Luke 8, saying that Jesus was uh, Caruso and Yuan How's that in a verb? Euangelion in a verb form, however you say that. By the way, I have to correct my Greek. Somebody caught me, and I was wrong. Two weeks ago, I said something wrong here. I'm going to make it right. Okay? I'm I'm sure I did more than that, but at least this one I know about. (laughs) Okay? When I know about it, I should make it right. I said, huper was under, but that's wrong. Hupo is under, hypodermic. Huper is over, above. I got my prepositions mixed up. All right, so I got that corrected. Um, now, whatever the verb form of evangelion, I got it written down on my notes for my sermon, but it says he was pro- evangelizing the kingdom of God, uh, preaching and evangelizing the kingdom. And then, and then it goes on to this sower and the seed where it's talking about the word. And then it talks about hearing the word and, and, and so on. The word of God and the gospel... And the gospel of the kingdom are all using synonymous parallelisms. Okay? So then people come along and say, no, that's different. The gospel's this, the gospel kingdom's that, and they make all these distinctions when they're used synonymously in the context. Okay? So, Ryan, you're absolutely right. You have all of the, this whole list of synonymous parallelisms. You can't pull one of them out of the list and make it mean something else. It's, that's bad hermeneutics. So it says here, in a moment and twinkling an eye, at the last trumpet. So this passage sets the resurrection at the last trumpet. And therefore, when we die, now, now we're going to compare that to where we're going here in 2 Corinthians 5, 
where it says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's why we believe that there's an intermediate state that we're not totally, it's not totally explained in the scripture. We just know it exists. Because Paul talks about those who are dead in Christ, who have died before the final resurrection. And he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It doesn't say to be absent with the body is to be in a condition of limbo or, or soul sleep or something like that. All right? And Paul in Philippians 1 expresses his wish to be with the Lord. He says, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. He was on trial. He could have been executed by the Romans. And he said, for you, it would be better if I'd stay and I could have some more fruitful ministry among you. But for me, it would be better if I go to be with the Lord. All right? So Paul wasn't anticipating going into neutral and not having any consciousness or anything, being in this state like a spiritual coma and being in that state and then coming back into existence at the resurrection. But he, he anticipated being with the Lord. Right? So, therefore, there's what's called in theology an intermediate state between death and the resurrection that from what we can read in the Scripture in these few passages, that we're conscious, that we can see the Lord and be with the Lord. And more, what's more than that, somebody says, well, then are we disembodied spirits? Well, I don't want to add any more terminology than what the Bible actually says about it. Maybe Ryan knows some things. Did he get uh, shed the light? Yes. What about people that aren't going to be going to see Christ? What happens to them when they die? They go to Hades. There's two places the New Testament talks about in the Greek. Hades and Gehenna. Right? Hades, uh, Gehenna is the lake of fire. And it says in Revelation that the first two occupants are the false prophet and the beast. Right? And that this Gehenna is reserved for the devil and his angels. And after the very final judgment, the great white throne judgment, the wicked, at that point, the wicked are raised at the very end. They stand before God at the great right throne judgment. Everybody's name, not in the book of life, goes into the lake of fire. In the meantime, they've been in Hades. Now, according to Luke chapter 16, in this little story about Lazarus and the rich man, Hades is not a desirable place to go. <laughs> because the rich man in Hades says, uh, let, uh, this, I need some relief from this torment. And there's this chasm fixed between the, the blessed one in Abraham's bosom and the tormented one in Hades. And then the man says, when he finds out he can't come back and he can't get out of there, he says, well, well why, let me come and warn my brothers. Uh, I have some brothers, and if, and if they knew this place was like this, they'd repent. I mean, I'm adding to it, but that's, that's the implication. And remember what Jesus said? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if a man is raised from the dead or comes back from the dead. And, and it was an ironic uh, foreshadowing of what was going to happen, that Jesus Christ himself was going to die and be raised from the dead and appear before many witnesses, and still many refused to believe. Okay, so... Uh, the only way to escape the dying and going to Hades and awaiting there for the final resurrection where you know you'll be raised and then consigned to the lake of fire, the only way to escape that is to believe the truth of the gospel as revealed in the scriptures. 
Okay? There's that, and, and actually, I wonder if that isn't a good uh, proof against these people who claim to have gone, died, and come back from the dead. Have you heard those stories? Yeah, it was on TV. Yeah. It was on TV, she says. Well, there are these people that claim to have died and come back from the other side. And then they're going to be testifying about what it's like. But the problem is, many of them who have had this experience are not Christians. And they come back and tell how wonderful it is and there's nothing to fear. And I've told this before, but you maybe didn't remember or you weren't all here. I used to know a lady, I haven't seen her probably over 10 years, but back in the 80s, I was I knew a lady who was a volunteer with this ministry that I was on the board of. And she, before she was a Christian, had been in one of those situations. She was in a car wreck. She had this experience of leaving her body and entering into this light and everything was beautiful. And then she was resuscitated. And then later she was converted and believed the gospel. And she was telling me that she now knows that that experience she had was a delusion from Satan to deceive her into thinking she didn't need the gospel. Okay? Because, and, and so then, uh, who, who are some of these people? Who was that lady who was embraced by the light? Remember? Yeah, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Well, yeah, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the, uh, yeah, five steps of dying that they use their stuff for training. And we uh, had a videotape of her debating a Christian and she's saying nobody has anything to fear. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu or uh, atheist. Anybody that dies is going to go to a better place. That's what she says. And so, the, and occasionally there's a Christian who claims to have died and gone to heaven and come back and they're going to write a book about it. Or there's some of them who claim to have gone, left their body, gone to heaven and come back. Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis, I wrote a story about. Yeah, he went up to heaven and talked to David, Jesse Duplantis. He's talking to David, you know, if you're going to go to heaven, why talk to some schmuck that just died, you know? You, you, you go right to the top. No, I'm not calling anybody heaven or schmuck, but, you know, why not talk to David? Gee, you know. So, but guess what David told Jesse Duplantis? That, that, that a lot of those psalms really aren't very good because he wrote them when he was having a bad day. <laughs> So, 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 and and then another man went to heaven and talked to to uh, Paul. That was uh, Joyner. Yeah, Rick Joyner. Rick Joyner went to heaven and talked to Paul. And get this, Paul told him that people shouldn't put that much emphasis on Paul's writings. It's better just to read what Jesus said. And so, isn't it interesting that two of these guys that went to heaven when they got there? Whoever they were talking to was causing them to doubt the canon of the Bible. That not all of the Bible is reliable. Now, do you think that was from God? No, absolutely. This is a delusion. They're they're having, uh, like Dave Hunt calls it, a a demon playing a videotape in their brain. And they're having this experience. And in every case, there's an attack against the authority of the canon of Scripture. I was just going to say... In the scripture, when we have Moses and Elijah come back and speak with Jesus, we're not given their words. The words of Lazarus after he was raised from the dead, we're not given his words. The other people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead, we're not given their words. It's just not recorded, so we don't know, and it's not given to us to know. Paul, 
who does did go to heaven said we're not he wasn't allowed to was he illegal to speak to yeah. speak about it so we don't have the words of that in the scriptures wow. and what we do have at least I'd heard in uh, people reference the book of Revelation 6 9 he saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they'd maintained and they cried out with a loud voice how long O Lord holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood and those who dwell on the earth so there's saints in heaven underneath the altar, the souls of the saints waiting there until something happens, and they were given a white robe as they waited, and I've heard that as being a possibility. Okay, that's a very, very good insights that mostly were, the words aren't recorded. And I was going to mention that thing about Paul saying, Corinthians 12, that whatever he saw was unlawful for a man to utter. So what do we take from this little walk through the Bible we're doing here about death and the, and the afterlife? And the resurrection. What do we learn from it? What we know that's legal is what's written in Scripture. And anything beyond that, somebody claims whether they claim to go into heaven or they claim to go into hell or they claim to have uh, seen the light when they died and came back, is, is, is not a credible testimony. Because Jesus says, you have Moses and the prophets. If you don't believe that, you're neither going to believe that somebody comes back. All right. And so we what we know about heaven and what we know about spiritual truth is what's revealed in Scripture. Nothing beyond that. Yes. I think what's interesting is when you bring up the two examples you brought up with uh, uh, Duplantis and uh, Joyner. Joyner um, and that, that their examples are not the only ones. This happens a lot. And the, the undermining of the Scriptures, and you think of what the oldest lie in the Bible is, is has God really said? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and the same lie of the serpent has made its way through history, and it's still going on today. And that's what we find with when people say things like this: "Don't focus on the writings of Paul." Well, that's has God really said that? It's undermining the canon of the Scripture. Yeah, exactly. And or well, even the idea that some of David's psalms are no good. Well, then what's the saying is that we're not sure what part of the Bible we can actually believe. We have to pick and choose. And what's that other than theological liberalism? When in the 18, late 19th century, when theological liberalism was, at least in its modern form, was invented in Germany, what was their main point? The Bible contains the Word of God, rather than the Bible is the Word of God. And, and you need us to have a Jesus seminar to see which things you can believe. Okay? And so now uh, it's a Satan undermining the Scripture. Yes, Gail. Uh, you know, I, I think I've heard stories of people that said that they, you know, they, when they die, they've gotten, they've seen hell and darkness, and yeah, they, and that they've come back. So, yeah, I, they, there's there's those stories too. I, I actually wrote an article once where I critiqued somebody's book who claimed to have gone that Jesus gave her a guided tour of hell, and she wrote about it. And Ryan has that story about somebody who read one of those books that was not a Christian. He got so scared he didn't go to parties for two days. <laughs> okay, Chad. <laughs> uh, just a quick question. I just want to make sure I, I kind of understand where we ended up on this. Uh, the intermediate state, do you view that as being similar to paradise, Abraham's bosom? Are those all kind of the same thing? Yeah, when it talks about Abraham's bosom in Luke 16, then the Old Testament has Sheol, 
which is the place of the departed. But if you read through the Old Testament, it's not a lot of details, but that's where people go. And the Old Testament, I mean, there is progressive revelation through Scripture, and we learn more about these things in the New Testament. They're just hinted at in the Old. But, but they, their conception of Sheol was going to be with your fathers. All right? Abraham went to be with, uh, went to, uh, he departed from this life, and then later people went and were laid to rest. And in fact, they often buried families together uh, in tombs because they sort of had a conception of a, something, but they didn't have the details. Yes. Okay. And were you saying then that uh, biblically we believe that until the second coming, like those who have already died are still kind of in their unregenerate state, even though they're in yeah, paradise? The, the, or... the lost, uh, here's how I understand it, okay, based on what we do know. I believe that when, the, when the rapture happens, the dead in Christ rise first, those that are alive are caught up. And then in twinkling of the eye that talks about first for these 15, that's talking about the righteous. So the people who were uh, in Abraham's bosom, or that's more of an Old Testament conception, but who are with, had died and gone to be with the Lord, they're raised. That's when they receive a resurrection body. The dead who were not in Christ stayed in Hades. Until I believe the end of the millennium, until just at the very end. Now somebody was pointing some out, and I sent her to talk to you because you know more than I do about eschatology. Uh, Ryan, somebody showed me some scripture and said I had never heard this, and she was just reading the Bible and, and, and saw this, and I don't know, if, I've never even heard it. She said, "Well, it talks about those people that rebelled against God at the end of the millennium." She wonders, just reading along, whether those were the people that were in Hades who were raised and they were left on the earth to rebel before they go to the great white throne. Have you ever heard that? I never heard that either. Well, I'm, I'm not preaching it. But <laughs> if somebody knows that to be true, send us some evidence. But I, that was just an idea this lady had. Okay. Um, she asked whether Hades, as far as Catholics are concerned, is the same thing as purgatory. I don't know how refined that doctrine is. I, I would, they probably would say that the people that are lost or non-Catholic go to Hades and the Catholics go to purgatory. I'm guessing, but I'm not a Catholic scholar. I don't know. But there's no purgatory anyhow, so you can't go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's really hard to go to a non-existent place. All right. Uh, okay, now that was a kind of a background, but the reason I did all this background is because I know all these questions are coming up, so I thought I'd dress them up front and then read our passage. Now, we look down at the things which are seen. Obviously, talking about things here on the earth that we can function and deal with in our, the bodies we have now in our physical senses. But the non-seen things, remember it says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Uh, for the things that you've seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. So there's a perishable, imperishable, mortal, immortal, temporal, eternal. It's just different ways of discussing these distinctions. Um, uh, Kathy, if you could do Matthew 25:46, Roger, Romans 8, 24 and 25. I already did Hebrews 11:1, 1, so... Uh, uh, well, you can go ahead and look it up. Hebrews 11:1. 1. I, I just partially quoted it. Hebrews, the 11 one. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 for Ryan. 
Okay, uh, Matthew 25:46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there, there in Matthew 25:46, it talks about the difference between going to eternal punishment or eternal life. Right? How do you know you're going to heaven when you die? If you're not a Jehovah Witness, right? <laughs> they don't believe they go to heaven. Anybody can go to heaven. Um, you have to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If his blood has washed away your sins, if you've repented and turned to him and trusted him for salvation, you'll go, go to eternal life. you go to be with the Lord when you die. And the reason I say there's no purgatory is that Jesus has paid all for all of our sins already. The blood of Jesus Christ shed once for all. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we don't have to be perfectly just to be declared just. So that's, that's the big de- debate at the Reformation. That's the difference between Catholicism and what we believe. We believe justification is something God does upon say, people having saving faith. And that at that point, they receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so we go not with the garments of our own filthy righteousness, but with the white garment of God's perfect righteousness that was provided in Christ. And that that's true for all Christians. And, and, and the reason for the need of, for purgatory in Catholic theology is the fact that because they say God will never declare you just until you actually are just, and because it's ob- manifestly obvious that, that many, many, in fact, I would say it's manifestly obvious that all Christians aren't perfectly just when they die. So purgatory is a way to resolve that problem, and, and then you have to suffer there and what all that, however the conception of that is, until you finally get to that point of actually being just by adding to the merits of Christ, whereas we believe it's a free gift. That's the difference. Uh, uh, here. Well, I was just going to comment because I, I come from Catholic background, and it's like they, they believe there's like a second cut, but there's no second cut. You know, with the purgatory thing. Yeah, it's like it, you, you can, if you don't get it right now, you've got another chance. Okay, Roger has a verse, um, Romans 8, 24 25. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Okay, so that's again talking about the difference between the seen and the unseen, and in Hebrews 11.1 1 as well. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay, so Paul said that we hope for what we don't see, and uh, Hebrews says... Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. So we believe that there really is a resurrection and that we really will see our Christian loved ones who have gone before us and that everything God promises is true. 1 John 2, 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. All right. So there's, again, the contrast between a temporal and eternal. The world has a lot of lust. The world has things it offers us that look very enticing, but it passes away. 
Yes. I was just going to maybe one more point on the resurrection and the resurrection bodies. And I think it is a big, your eschatology has a big uh, impact in what you look forward to in your own body and what you look forward to as a Christian. But in Revelation 20, what we believe is that when Christ comes in his millennium, those in Christ who died in Christ will come back reign to life yeah. and reign tangibly. They'll have real bodies and reign on this earth as real men and women under Christ, and they'll reign for a thousand years. And it says, just here in 24, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast, not received the mark in his their forehead or hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection, over those the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Amen. So, Revelation 26. Revelation 20, verse 6. So, that's what the Bible teaches, and we believe that to be literal, and I have publicly debated the fact that that's liberal. Liberal, literal. And uh, others say there is no such thing as a millennium or a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth with the raised saints. But they got a real problem with that passage in Revelation that says that there is. Now, let's go to chapter 5. We're going to get into that chapter 5 yet here. We've had a lot of long discussion on 4, but it was worthwhile. Now, um, i got to make a... A little comment here. Let me read the passage and then comment on something. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Now, I've been quoting a scholar by the name of Garland throughout Second Corinthians, and I really like his, his commentary. But he's wrong on this verse. Garland it makes the claim that we get our resurrection bodies immediately upon death, not later at the rapture. And he has pages of argumentation to prove what we know to be false. Um, I sent it to Ryan. Now, let me make a comment on that. One of the things that doesn't help you arrive at the truth is parochialism, right? Um, There's no one person worthy to follow in every single teaching that they, they get. Right? We have to always search the Scriptures, and we have to be Bereans, and we have to learn hermeneutics for ourselves. We need to learn how to read. That's what hermeneutics is, learning how to read. We need to learn what the Bible says. Now, uh, parochialism is when you decide to subs- subscribe to a set of beliefs that someone has formulated sometime in church history. And subscribing to that, you're saying, I'm going to believe this, I'm going to believe all of this, and I'm not going to believe anything else. That's where I'm at. And I've known people who've done that. Now, some people do that because they believe that it makes them safe. They've, they, they maybe had the experience of having been deceived um, you know, by listening to different ones. And, and In fact, I have a friend who did that. He was a Pentecostal back in the, like I was. He went through Bible college like I did, North Central Bible College. And then he got disillusioned with where he ended up uh, eventually and began to have different theological ideas, began to understand the doctrines of grace, understood 
uh, what the solos of the Reformation are all about. And he said, you know, i got to get into a different movement. And, and you know who I'm talking about. He's a good friend. And what he did was he joined a Presbyterian church and determined to believe nothing but what's in the Westminster Confession. Nothing but what's if it's not in this Westminster Confession, don't come and tell me about it. All right. And so the Ryan and I were debating with him. We used to have a joint retreat with his church and we were debating with him on infant baptism. And his answer was. Brighter minds than mine have thought this over and come to the conclusion I'm satisfied. In other words, I don't want to defend infant baptism from Scripture because the Westminster Confession believes in it, and a lot of smart people wrote that. Um, and likewise with eschatology. Now, you know, in one way, our, our friend is safe, okay? Because the Westminster Confession, I've studied it. It's a very good document, and most of it is reliable. It has the gospel right. It has some things right about what the Christian life. I don't agree with even all of that because they believe in the Puritan Sabbath. I don't think that's in the Scripture. All right? So he's safe in the sense that he's not going to be outside of Christ or outside of the Gospel. But on the other hand, is that superior to searching the Scriptures on all points? Okay? Now, so I could decide, okay, I want to interpret Second Corinthians. What's the best commentary available? Well, the best one I've seen so far is this one by Garland. But if I had just decided I'm going to believe whatever he says, then I'd have to believe with him that the resurrection happens as soon as you die. And, and then he goes through five pages trying to explain why, why it's not a problem that that's in conflict with what it says in 1 Corinthians. And he really doesn't come up with an explanation. You can almost always tell when somebody's uh, clicking along and they get on something where they're wrong. They write many more words. Okay, <laughs> and so it takes a lot more words to explain why the Bible doesn't mean what it says than it does to explain what the Bible does mean what it says. Now, what's my point? My point is that every Christian, yes, listen to the teachers. Don't. Uh, another point. I'm not going to throw away my garland commentary because I disagree on that point. He may have the rest of it just absolutely right. It's still valuable. And I'm not going to throw away the Westminster Confession as, a, as something worth studying because I disagree with the Puritan Sabbath and infant baptism. There were a lot of smart guys. Yeah, there were a lot of smart guys. And so uh, we need the teachers of the church, but we don't need to just choose one or two and say, all right, swear allegiance, that's what we're going to do. And don't do that with us here. Don't just say, well, I'm going to go to Twin City Fellowship and believe what they teach. No, you come to Twin City Fellowship with your Bible and your rational mind, and you study it, and you make sure we have some kind of a backup. If we're telling you something, we should give you some good reasons, and we should listen to people that want to disagree. Yeah, and if you don't agree, you may be the very person that God's brought to bring correction to Twin City Fellowship. That's right. There's, it's never wrong to disagree. That's, that's so important to understand, because as soon as you can't have a discussion, then you're being controlled. You know, as soon as the pastor says... And I get emails about that every week. I went to the pastor and I asked him why he doesn't do expository preaching. And he told me, well, I think you'll be happier at a different church. Now, that's not, don't, if I ever do that, don't let me. Absolutely never, ever do that. Dick won't let me. Uh, all right? Because that person that's asking about expository preaching deserves to be listened to. me. And if you think it's better to not do expository preaching and do topical, then defend yourself. Don't just say, leave the church. 
But methinks that sometimes they know they're wrong. And they'd rather have the voices go away. But the Lord knows the heart. Now, back to our passage. So I'm telling you Garland was wrong. This isn't implying. But what does it mean? See, what he's saying here is that uh, we have, because that's a present tense, it must mean that happens right at death. But that's just not correct, because we have, he's saying it right then while they're still alive. So it's a proleptic statement. Okay, now we've gone over this many times. Who can define prolepsis? <laughs> put, put the mic in front of Brian. He goes, <laughs> all right. Uh, well, the reason I probably have to go over this more than once is that we don't use that term in everyday English. We use the concept, though. You hear it. Many, many times watching football, you hear a prolepsis or a proleptic statement when you watch football. Whenever there's a big disparity in the the, uh, score in the fourth quarter, the announcers say the game is over. Let's say you're down by two touchdowns with four minutes left and you're driving to try to get down one touchdown. And you fumble the ball away and the other guy gets it and runs back and now they're three touchdowns ahead. The announcer says... The game is over. Now, is it really over? No. Only in baseball, only in baseball can you say it's not over till it's over. Because in baseball it has no clock. And if they can't get you out, you could be down well the Yankees did the other night. They came back from seven to two. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Boo. I, I like the Yankees. But anyhow, the game isn't over in baseball. Yogi's right. It's not over until it's over because it really isn't. Because you can have two outs and, then, and keep going. But in, in any time clock sport, when you get too big of a deficit, the time clock guarantees that it's over. So a proleptic statement is when you use present tense to describe something as future. Now, there are so many of these in the Bible, and they're famous ones. Like, uh, for instance, Romans 8, 29 and 30, where all the justified are glorified. Well, we're not glorified yet, but it's present tense. Yes. Yeah, and I think to, to relate that to the, what we're talking about here, in Paul's theology, in John's theology, when we read their epistles and their uh, other writings, the reason why he says this is because Christ is risen. The, wow. Christ is risen, and because Christ is risen, everybody who believes in him is guaranteed to follow. Therefore, yeah. that's why it's over for believers. There's, <laughs> there's nothing that can prevent them from finishing the race and being glorified. Hallelujah. <laughs> nothing can stop it because Christ is raised. He's the first fruit, so it's guaranteed that the rest of the harvest is going to come. Now, uh, so here, and now using this proleptic statement, Brian, you were supposed to know that. You said what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> so let's, let's interpret this now in light of that. Another famous prole- prolepsis, by the way, is the entirety of uh, Isaiah 53. The entire chapter is one long prolepsis because... He was wounded for our transgression. And when Isaiah wrote that, there wasn't any such person on the scene of history. But Jesus Christ came and fulfilled it. For we, have, we know that if this earthly tent, is, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with 
uh, with hands eternal in the heavens. And we do in the sense that it's there for us. We just haven't gone there yet. Now, the question is, one of the scholars that I read listed like seven different interpretations about what that house is. What was he talking about? Is he talking about our future resurrection body? Is he talking about what Jesus said in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there ye may be also. So the, the mansion over the hilltop. We know that's true because I heard it in the song. <laughs> So there's a, a, a place for us, eternal in the heavens. Now, um, you can list all these uh, things, but what we realize is that all the promises are true. It's true that God has a place for us. It's true to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. It's true that when we die, we go to see the Lord himself. It's true that we will have a future resurrection body. So this house, eternal in the heavens, is these future promises that at this time are not seen. The word for torn down, kataluthe, uh, is the same Greek word used in Mark 14:58 for Jesus' body, where, where the critics said, he said, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. That's a very crucial apologetic point, by the way, uh, that Morrison, who wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone, laid a lot of weight on that statement in Mark um, 1458, uh, because w- what Morrison pointed out was this. In that statement, we have Jesus' critics testifying that he predicted his own resurrection. Because that was, they were the ones that said that. We heard him say that. So now that we know that it was, he was predicting his own resurrection, which it says in other scriptures, we have critics on the scene of history saying before the fact, we heard Jesus predict his own resurrection. And in a sense, the critics were testifying for the gospel and didn't know it. Because they were saying this to accuse him of sorcery. The count that they wanted him uh, crucified for was sorcery. That he was going to do magic. And tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. That... Do you think that he was talking about the uh, temple in Jerusalem? Well, they, well, they, yeah, it was kind of a cryptic sta- statement in their in their minds. But this was an accusation. Oh, he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. You know, that's why we want him crucified. Turned out, it was a prediction of his resurrection. Now, so this, so so in a sense, torn down was uh, 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 an analogy for what it meant for Jesus to die, and it's used here as an analogy for what it means for us to die, like tearing down a building. So this, this tent, now the word, the earthly tent contrasts the heavenly one, and, and by using the term earthly tent, it, it denotes a temporary dwelling. A tent is not, for us anyhow, permanent residence. It only is for Bedouins and Nomadic peoples. But, but a tent usually is a temporary dwelling. And you'd pitch it out in the boundary waters. And if you had to live there the rest of your life, you would never go to the boundary waters. Because it's too rigorous. And it rains and, it, and the water comes in your tent. And you can't get dry once you get wet. Anybody ever done that? I went up there one time and it started raining and it didn't stop. It rained and rained and rained. And there were, it was, it was two couples, Diane and I, and another couple. And there were two tents. And one 
tent leaked and the other didn't. So us guys got thrown into the one that leaked and the two ladies went into the one that didn't. <laughs> and we spent the rest of the, of the time trying to light a fire in the rain. <laughs> That's how we kept warm, trying to light a fire in the rain. And wouldn't you know, we didn't get it lit until it quit raining. You? Very end. Okay, so this is a tent is a temporary thing. And so we are living in a temporary uh, uh, structure, our human body, that will be torn down, but we know that we have a, a building of God eternal in the heavens. Uh, so this, there, there's a series of, of words, like Ryan was talking about First Corinthians 15, that are somewhat synonymous. They're talking about our, or actually are somewhat synonymous. And, and Second Corinthians 4.10, it's called body. Second Corinthians 4.11, called mortal flesh. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, called outer person. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, called earthen pot. And here, it's called a tent house. Okay? Temporary, temporary dwelling. A building, uh, but, but it's temporary, but there's a permanent one awaiting us. Gail, could you look up Genesis 3.19 and Zeke, John 14.2 and 3? Already alluded to that. Robert, one Corinthians. Oh, we already did Corinthians. We'll, we'll, let's not go over that again. Hebrews 9, 11, and 24. They're separated. Hebrews 9, 11, and 24. And Denise, one, two, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14. You know, most of the doctrines in the Bible are repeated in different places. Okay? Showing us the unity of the Bible and reinforcing the truth. It's interesting. Uh, the more I study, the more I see the unity of the Bible. Uh, there are some people, the more they say, the more disunity they see, but I think they're wrong. Uh, Genesis 3.19. Uh, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Yeah, because of Adam's sin, he was told he was going to return to dust. John 14.2 and 3. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Yeah, that's beautiful. We, we often quote that at, at memorial services. What a beautiful passage. Yes. Isn't that a little bit confusing? Because that sounds like a place you go to. You know, you get a room at this hotel as opposed to a body. That's well, it's to analogical or language. I mean, if you think about it, you, you, I was, I don't know uh, whether I was thinking of my mind or talking to somebody. I think I was thinking of my mind. <laughs> I'm getting old. I'm confused. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I was talking to myself. Bob, I wonder what that passage means. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think this. Okay, let me explain what I mean. If you look at that, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you'll be also. Now, is he talking about what happens when we die, or is he talking about the parousia? Which one is true? Did we talk about that? <laughs> Here. What does it mean, Ryan? <laughs> I, I think that that's a it's eschatological right there. It's that speaking one of the parousia, that okay. he is going to return, and all, all of his 
all believers. Because what's interesting, and that's out of the farewell discourse in John. Yes. And Jesus, in his, in his high priestly prayer, even though he's speaking to his disciples at first, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he includes all believers. Okay. So I, I really do think that this, this extends to, to all believers at the parousia. Okay. The, so when he comes again, that's when we're received. Yeah. To go to the place that he prepared for us. So, the, yeah. so it's, it's not talking about just when we die. Okay. Now I got my answer. I should have called, I should have called you. Okay. <laughs> Don't be parochial. You mean Ryan could be wrong? <laughs> okay. But I, you got good evidence for your view. I like that. Yeah. I mean, see, now if you look at what Paul's seeing. In 2 Corinthians 5, he's mostly talking about going to heaven, to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. But he does talk about things in the future. He talks about the judgment seat of Christ, and that's a later. So it can be both and. Now, Hebrews 9, 11 and 24. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God for us. Now to appear in the yeah. presence of God for us. Excuse me. Yeah, one letter makes a big difference, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> now or not. Now. Yeah, so, it, so the Bible claims in Hebrews that Jesus is in a heavenly, gone to the heavenly sanctuary, and he appears before God for us. So that's now we have one more passage that Denise was going to do, two Peter one thirteen and fourteen. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir up you by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Okay, so that Peter uses the same terminology that he's in a tent and he's going to die, and when he dies, it's called putting off the tent. So it's clear that the New Testament believes that people, when they die, retain their um, conscious faculties of the mind and be able to go be with the Lord. And according to Paul, that would even be a better place. And so that's what this intermediate state is until the resurrection. You know, uh, Bob, you're talking about the unity of the Bible and how it's, it's so consistent. And there's, there's a lot of liberal scholars that say that resurrect, the resurrection of the body is just a New Testament doctrine. Nothing oh, that you oh, find. Oh, it's, it's in the old, yeah. And I was going to read something out of Job here, which is powerful. This is really what we've been talking about is, is resurrection today. This is from Job chapter 19. I'll start with verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my own eyes will see, and not another. Then my heart faints within me. So, I mean, (laughs) the doctrine of the resurrection is stated there so clearly. Yeah. And then there's also uh, Daniel 12 and verse 2. And then passages that Isaiah. So the doctrine of the resurrection is found in the Old Testament as well. So uh, this is a very, very important doctrine. Do you know uh, the the resurrection of Christ and then the 
companion doctrine of the hope of our resurrection is taught throughout the Bible as a very, very important doctrine and as something that we should cherish uh, because of the hope that it gives us. Amen?